pronounce my name, and I'm an alcoholic. If you'd have been a duck yesterday, pal, you'd have had it. It was quite an experience, but in all honesty, uh, Reno's been very attentive. He's taken care of uh, Shirley and I, everything that we requested. He was right there with uh, the answers, and I appreciate that. The hospitality was just been outstanding. And it always has been in, the, in North Carolina, believe me. And uh, we certainly appreciate it. I want to thank uh, Dave and the committee for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, this thing never gets any easier for me. I haven't done it for some time, but uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. And I want to thank everyone, all of you, for being here and making Shirley and me as uh, comfortable as we've been. It's a great thing to have 30th, uh, the 30th anniversary of the conference. I think that's outstanding. I feel, uh, as I had felt many, many times on Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon, whatever the occasion may have been, standing on the 10-yard line on the receiving end of the football game, praying to God that that football wouldn't come to me. And I had the jitters, and my stomach was turning over, and I uh, I was always upset. And I relate that very well to standing up here in front of you this morning, because that's exactly the feeling I had. So after I got hit a couple of times, that all left me. And I don't say that, I, I didn't mean to say that in that manner, maybe, but I don't want, I know there's a lot of Panthers sitting out there. And uh, I don't want any of you young guys come up here and taking a crack at me. I don't need that. But it's been uh, <clears throat> it's been a very rewarding weekend up until now. I said Tom Brown was my name, and I'm an alcoholic. And with the help of God, my deceased wife Betty, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, great sponsorship. It hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink since April 21st, 1963. That's a little over 33 years of uninterrupted sobriety, and I don't say that, believe me, to impress anybody. I I quit trying to impress people many years ago, but uh, I'll have to admit, it impresses the hell out of me. I was forced into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and didn't want to go, but I had no choice at that time. And thank God that uh, I stayed and uh, it's working out. The big book tells us to tell what it was like and what happened and what it's like today. I'll endeavor to do that. Like so many uh, young people that I've heard talk, old people that I've heard talk, uh, their drinking started in high school, and mine wasn't any different. I was a self-will run riot right from the start. I uh, was a very poor student, and I only did exactly what I wanted to do. Nobody could tell me anything. I was very uh, self-centered, very egotistical. And, uh, and very selfish. And I only did, wanted to do the things that interested me. I uh, was uh, involved in athletics, and I loved it, truly loved it. And I centered my whole life around becoming a better athlete. As a result of that, my schoolwork suffered, and uh, I was in trouble right from the beginning. But uh, throughout my uh, drunken existence, people were always helping me. Regardless of whatever situation I found myself in, I always had somebody coming to the front and bailing me out. My mother and father, and coaches and friends, throughout my life, the 
just that way. I didn't know anything about the egotism. Uh, I, I uh, just accepted the things that were happening to me, and I thought that I had all of this coming. I thought I was a lot better athlete than I was, and I let everybody else know it. I, uh, it was, uh, it was a beautiful experience having some of the things happen to me as I did in my young life. I never, uh, never liked the taste of alcohol. I just drank it. I drank for the effect, and, uh, I didn't need that. I know I had a lot of problems with Tom Brown long before I ever took a drink. But, uh, the alcohol stimulated me and made me do things in a better, I thought, manner. And it just progressed and progressed. And I had an awful lot of fun drinking in my younger life. I can't re recall when I crossed over that so-called invisible line. But uh, I never recognized things getting worse until almost up to the very end. And uh, I had a lot of people tell me that uh, they couldn't understand uh, me drinking and not liking it. I told that to my dad. I'd been sober a couple of years, and we were sharing as we normally did in our home. <clears throat> I was talking to my dad about uh, some of the things that happened to me sober. And he was starting to believe whatever I was doing was uh, all right. He was starting to believe that AA was working. And uh, I mentioned to him, I said, Dad, you know, I, I never liked the taste of this stuff. And he had somewhat of a sense of humor, and he looked me right in the eye, and he says, I thank God for that. <laughs> but I never did. I never, I just drank through the effect. And I went through high school, and I was privileged and fortunate after uh, high school to uh, have a number of scholarships throughout the country, and uh, I made the tour of all of the, throughout the South, mostly, and uh, I ended up, uh, my mother was a great influence on me, and she uh, she liked uh, William and Mary. To make a long story short, that's where I ended up, at the College of William and Mary. Beautiful school. I had a wonderful, wonderful time there, really. Too good a time. <laughs> but uh, there again, I was, uh, I neglected my studies. I uh, late for class, and I just, I did things the way I wanted to do, and there again, they were always helping me out, and I was going to summer school, and one thing and another, and uh, I had had enough of school, I was, I uh, went there, uh, before I went to William Henry, I want to back up, uh, my grades weren't uh, uh, at the level that uh, they required, so they suggested uh, at their expense, they would send me to a Fort Union Military Academy. Fort Union Military Academy didn't turn me on. I didn't like uh, the idea of going to prep school. But I want to say here and now that it was one of the greatest experiences I ever had. I needed that discipline. I went up to Fort Union and uh, had a wonderful football team. We uh, we were the state champs that particular year. And uh, it helped me a great deal. I learned more there in one year than I did all four years in high school. Went into William and Mary, but then I fell back into the rut that I was a big shot. No one could tell me anything. I forgot what I'd learned, the discipline at uh, Fort Union. And I started to live my own life the way I wanted to. At that particular time in my life, uh, Pearl Harbor was uh, uh, bombed, and uh, war broke out, of course. And I did the only thing I knew how to do. I uh, didn't want my parents to know that I was a failure. So I did uh, 
the only possible thing I could think of. I wanted to join the Air Corps. I always wanted to be a pilot. Hal and I were talking about it the other night. And uh, I thought, this is an easy way out. So I did that. I joined the, the Air Corps and uh, went home to wait to be called into service. In those years, they didn't have uh, the bases set up for aviation cadet training. And uh, I had to wait several months before they called me into service. While I was waiting to be called in, I uh, was drinking and living off the fat of the land, as I'd done all my life with my mother and father. And uh, uh, I was coming off of a binge one weekend. I ran into my high school coach. Now, he's probably one of the only guys in the world that I was listening to at that particular time. And Reed said, pulled me aside, and he tried to talk some senses to me about straightening my, straightening my life out. And he said, why don't you uh, go up and try out with the Pittsburgh Steelers? And I said, Reed, um, I've only had a couple of years of experience in college, and I'm not qualified. And he said, uh, why don't you be a walk-on? Just go up there and walk on. So I went down to the Steeler organization, and uh, they cleared me through the College of William and Mary. I got somewhat of a fairly decent recommendation. And they sent me up to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I won't drag this out. It was a real privilege to have that opportunity. And uh, I made the ball club. There was 75, 80 ball players up there. In those years, we played both ways. There are a bunch of sissies in this day. They only play one way in this day and age. But we played both ways, and I'll tell you, I loved it. I just loved football. I loved the contact. I liked the smack in the guy. Uh, <clears throat> and it really, it really was my whole life. And so uh, it was a real tough training season, but I, I made it, and I made the ball club. And uh, I loved every single minute of that year. It was in 1942. And uh, I did lots of things to warrant them kicking me off that ball club. But they had a little compassion for me, I guess. And I managed to finish that season. And it was one of the most memorable years of my life. I really enjoyed it. I went into the service. I was called into the service then. And uh, I found a new love. Flying airplane, and I uh, thought I was the greatest pilot that ever lived, of course. And I uh, went through cadet training. I went to Arcadia, Florida, and uh, in the Bainbridge and in Valdosta. But uh, I never really uh, followed the rules and regulations. And uh, I walked a lot of penalty tours and so forth, and I paid the price. And I drank on every occasion uh, because I thought it was something special. And uh, I had a few yards to go to graduate. And I uh, i don't know about you alcoholics, but I always like to celebrate prematurely, regardless of what the situation may have been. So I went in and I, uh, I, got, to, I got high. And I came back to the base, later to fly the next morning. I had a cross-country and some acrobatics. And uh, I took off in my aircraft, my airplane. And I flew that ship in the exact opposite manner in which I had been taught. And I was called and told to immediately to report back to the base, which I did. But I had always been able to uh, talk my way out of any situation. And I thought that I could do this. But upon closer scrutiny, they saw that I wasn't falling down drunk, of course, but they saw the condition I was in, and I was restricted to uh, my barracks and the post. And I was washed out of cadets. 
couple of weeks later. That was the first time in my life that anything had ever been taken away from me that I really treasured and loved, and I really and truly loved the fly. So I was uh, real tough to handle. I wouldn't do anything. Because <laughs> when you're in the service, you either do it or you pay the price, and I spent a lot of time locked up from time to time. They sent me up to Colorado to a school that I refused to go to. And uh, here again, uh, one of the commanding officers on the base, a liked athlete, and uh, he saw fit to uh, reassign me to uh, Hap Arnold's, one of the four Air Forces. I ended up in Riverside, California at the 4th Air Force. All I had to do was, uh, I had a couple of physical training classes to take care of and play football. And I was in my element, and I did that. And it was just a wonderful way. I didn't have any really rules or regulations to follow. I was my own man again, I thought. At the end of the year, uh, the people in the, on the West Coast, the parents, we were getting the hell kicked out of us in Europe. And uh, they were complaining about big, big football players and having a gravy train playing football and so forth. So they broke up our team. I gotta tell you about this, uh, experience. It's one that I shall never forget. They disbanded our ball club, different bases throughout the country. And with five other ball players and myself, we were assigned to Havana, Cuba, to teach the airfield. I don't know whether anybody in here has ever been to Havana or Cuba or whatever, but, uh, it was a beautiful island and, uh, it was just gorgeous. The girls were young and beautiful. The ramen coke was very inexpensive. And I was in my element. I thought, my God, this is a drunkard's paradise. And uh, I, I, I was having a wonderful time. Uh, for one, one weekend in particular, we were quarantined. The base was quarantined. Couldn't get off the base. And we drank on the base and had some fun. The, the tighter I got, the, the, the thought that if I could get into Havana, I would be the only soldier in that whole damn town. Wouldn't that be a, that would be a hell of an evening. So I thought about that for a while, and the drunker I got, the better it sounded. So I swiped the Jeep, and I borrowed, we had a ball player with us by the name of Indian Jack Jacobs, who was an all-American from Oklahoma. I borrowed Indian Jack's officer's cap, and I talked my way through the gate. And I went into Havana, and had started to have a wonderful time. Now, I don't know whether you know the seriousness of this or not, but to impersonate an officer in a war zone, they shoot you for that. And that never entered my mind. <clears throat> and uh, I went in there and started to have fun. Now, when I was apprehended by the military police, I didn't want to go back to the chief. And uh, they had other ideas. But I fortunately didn't have the officer's cap on. It was in the chief. And uh, they took me back to the base. I woke up the next morning, and there was... Uh, all I had on was my shorts, and there was blood all over the place, and uh, I didn't really recognize what had happened the night before. I never had complete blackouts, but I had, uh, you know, I always remember certain things, and I knew that I'd given them quite a tussle, but I had no idea of the seriousness of what I had done. I was soon to find out. I was sentenced to uh, a stockade, court-martial, and... Uh, they threw me in the stockade, and I'll tell you, that's one of the most degrading circumstances I ever found myself in in my life. <clears throat> I met some of the, my 
new friends in the stockade. They were in there for all kinds of different things. And they had me convinced that after you got in there, pal, you never got out. I think for the first time in my life, I I almost gave up. It was just a, it was a terrible experience. My friends would ride around and try to wave to me, and I couldn't even acknowledge their hello. We would have taken up paper around a base camp with a guard behind us, and then the next week we'd be in the sugar cane fields cutting sugar cane. We had a little Puerto Rican guard that always assigned himself to me. I hated his guts. And I'm sure he felt that way about me. And every time I would stop doing what I was doing, he would come up behind me with that M1 and stick it right in the middle of my back. It wasn't killing me. I could have taken care of that, I guess, and handled it. But it was so, it was just so degrading. And I'd lay awake at night thinking about that. And, uh, he did that one, once or twice more. And I, I made up my mind, if he ever did that again, I was going to get him. Because I wasn't ever going to get out of there anyway. So the few days later in the sugarcane fields, I was I stopped doing what I was doing, cutting sugarcane. And he came up and muttered and mumbled to me. And uh, I turned on him, and I could, I was running after him. And uh, I can, as though it was yesterday, I could hear the guards on my flank cocking those M1s and hollering halt. And I just fell down there in the sugarcane field, and I just I couldn't handle it. They took me back to the base, and I was on bread and water for. Uh, couple of days, and you'd have thought that an experience like that, and I had made up my mind, if I ever got out of there, that I would never, ever get into a deal like that again. A few months later, uh, the guys were coming back to the States, and for some miraculous reason, they let me join them. I don't know to this day who was responsible, but I thank God for it, I'll tell you. I went back to Marshfield, Riverside, California. And I made up my mind that that was it. I'd never drink again. Now, I said that hundreds of times prior to this occasion, but I thought with that experience that I had that that would be the bottom line. But it didn't turn out that way. Uh, Curly Lambo had a nightclub up in uh, Los Angeles, and he invited us all up there. And I had some real good friends on the golf club. They told me to come along. They would take care of me. They, they would watch me. I wanted to go, but uh, I was really scared to take the chance. But inevitably, I went up there, and uh, I started to drink almost immediately, and I was right back in the neck of that bottle. Things had to change a bit, and I was in trouble from that day on. I was uh, struggling through the trials and tribulations of trying to do my duties at the Air Force, Fourth Air Force, and carry on my activities in Los Angeles with my drinking. And for some miraculous reason, I was given an honorable discharge shortly thereafter. I went back home to uh, Pittsburgh, and I uh, had hoped to pick up the where I'd left off with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I went to camp, and to make a long story short, I was drinking very heavily, and uh, they knew about some of the things that had happened. And they gave me my authorized release. And sent me down to their farm club with the promise that if I straightened myself out, that uh, they would bring me back. And that was in Richmond, Virginia, with the Richmond Rebels. And I played there for that year. And I didn't care about getting back to the big leagues. I really lost my desire. I was doing what I wanted to do. I could run my own life. So I stayed there. And then the following year, my college football coach, Carl Boyles, 
took over the fucking Dodgers in uh, the All-American Conference League. And he sent me a very, very attractive contract. And, of course, I jumped at the chance, and I went up to Brooklyn and uh, started to play with the fucking Dodgers. I played three games with them. We got into a big jam, a big fight, drinking, crowding. We wrecked the hotel and so forth. I was given my outright release, and I ran from that time on from coast to coast, back and forth, several years, looking for my pot of gold. I worked in aircraft factories, shipyards, anywhere to get enough money to drink on. I finally ran out of France's situation. I ended up back in my dad's home, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, drunk. And uh, I can remember him standing over me, and he had his foot in my ribs. And I looked up at him, and he says, uh, I want you to get the few things you have on this house and get out. And he says, I never want to see you again. And so I uh, <clears throat> I uh, asked for another chance, and my mother came to my defense, and, uh, you know, you never can do wrong in your mother's eyes. Mine was just, she stuck up for me and defended me from day one. But uh, my dad had made up his mind, and I had to get out. And I did that. I went into Pittsburgh, and I uh, got a job as a uh, salesman with a plumbing concern. And I traveled western Pennsylvania for the rest of that year and did very well. But I was still a big shot. No one could tell me what to do or what not to do. And I ran my own life. And uh, I was constantly in trouble and uh, borrowing money and Finally, it got so bad with my employer that they were trying to attach my wage. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. I just picked up and got out of Pittsburgh. I came to Cleveland, Ohio. <clears throat> Lucky Cleveland. I got a I got a similar job without too much difficulty. And I thought that I'd leave all those bill collectors back in Pittsburgh. It didn't take long for them to find me, and I was back into that situation again. And about this time, I, uh, my life started to change pretty drastically. I met a, a girl, my deceased wife, Betty, and uh, we had a whirlwind courtship. And after uh, five or six months, I asked her to marry me, and she told me I drank too much. And I said, well, I said, I can take care of that. I'll not quit drinking. So uh, I did that for several weeks, and I quit winking. I, she thought I was uh, on the level, and we were married. We went up to New York on our honeymoon, and I won't get into that. It's something I don't even remember most of it. I got drunk, and the things uh, were bad from day one. <clears throat> we came back, and I tried to straighten myself out with being a weekend drinker. And that only lasted temporarily. And our situation got real bad. I owed a lot of money. We started to have... Uh, Betty started to have uh, babies, and we ended up with four little girls, one, two, three, just like that. And uh, my situation was so bad that I, I, I didn't know what in the world I was going to do. I uh, changed jobs in Cleveland, and just after being hired by this new employer, we had a seminar, and I started telling him how to run his business. I had started to drink 4 o'clock that afternoon. The seminar was at 7, so I was trying to run things already. And uh, I got in a lot of trouble that night. I won't go into that in detail, but they locked me up in Rocky River Jail. 
And uh, when I got out the next morning, a friend of mine came and got me out. Uh, I didn't really recognize what happened that night, but I was no longer employed. And uh, it was around the holidays, and we were in very, very bad trouble. I had no money. Bills were coming in. In any event, uh, an opportunity happened, and I went to... Uh, Indiana to be interviewed as a manufacturer's representative. And to make a long story short, I got that job. Things were just beautiful. But on the way home, uh, I, I stopped and I was supposed to be back the following day. Betty had told me she would give me one more chance. And I was three days late getting home. When I did arrive, I, there was one big, bad, horrible fight. And she had thrown up her hands, and she said that uh, she was going to divorce me and take my children away from me. And uh, for the first time in my life, with all the threats that I'd had prior to this, that got my attention. She and I had drifted a great distance apart, but I didn't want to lose those kids. And I said, uh, after arguing considerable length of time, I said, what do you want me to do? She said, I want you to call Alcoholics Anonymous. Unless you do, I'm leaving. Well... <clears throat> I argued a little about that some more. You think I'm an alcoholic? And uh, we won't go into detail on that either. But uh, <clears throat> she won that one. And I called the central office. And I talked to uh, the Dick B, who was in charge of the office at that time. And he said to sit tight. There would be somebody there to talk to me shortly. I'd done my thing. I was sick and I was hungover and I thought I just went and lay down. So I lay down on the couch and very shortly thereafter, the doorbell rang. And I gotta tell you about this first contact. This is, I think, a little unusual. I went to the door and uh, opened the door and there was two guys standing there. One had a bow tie on and a crew cut haircut and real thick glasses. He looked like a college professor, and I hated college professors. And the other guy had a Cleveland Browns t-shirt on, and he needed a shave. And uh, I didn't think too much of him either, so I didn't do it. But they took me into my living room and sat me down on the couch, and they started to talk to me. This uh, professor started to tell me some of, some of the things that he had encountered uh, with his drinking. One of the dumbest stories I ever heard in my life. And uh, he would be walking up and down in front of me and pointing his finger at me. He had a finger about that long. And every time he would pass me, he'd point that finger at me. And I, Jesus, I was getting nervous and I was upset. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is alcoholic violence. What is this? So uh, I couldn't take it. I, I stood up and I said, let's go, pal. And I'm taking him to the door. And uh, I thought my wife was in the bedroom with the, the girls, my little daughter. She came whirling around that kitchen, and she had her hands on her hips with that look. You know, and uh, I let the professor go, and uh, my back sat down next to the other guy. He hadn't opened his mouth, this other fellow, and I started to like him a little bit. <laughs> and the professor came up to me, and he says, Tom, he says, uh, you haven't been uh, telling me the truth said, you won't do this, you won't do that. And here he is calling me a liar. And I'll I tell you, I... I Stop, Dave, and turn over.
and he says, maybe the two of you can help one another. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about, you know, so he left. Cree <clears throat> and I sat there, and we looked at each other for a couple of seconds, and uh, you see, I didn't know it, but Cree came into AA that morning. <laughs> Professor had given him a list of all of the meetings in the area. And uh, Cree said to me, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, I don't want to go to a meeting tonight. And I said, Jesus, neither do I. <laughs> he said, well, I'll come back tomorrow. And he says, hey, we'll, we'll try this. I said, okay, pal. You know, so he left, and I said, Jesus, that was easy. I, I'll never see him again. But you know, he came back, came back the next day, and uh, then he was all set. She was all ready. Three of us started to go to meetings. We went to meetings, 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 meetings. And I want to tell you, we didn't miss any. We went to meetings for well over a year and a half, every single night. And I'd sit there in the back of the room, or wherever I could hide, and I was never paid attention. I didn't like anybody, wouldn't talk to anybody. But my wife, Betty, got into it, and she was very active. She did this, and she did that. She just loved Alcoholics Anonymous. She knew that there was much more than sobriety, just quitting drinking. She knew that there was a way of life in the rooms of AA. She could just keep me in there long enough to have that take hold. I wasn't going anywhere, really. I was not paying attention. I wouldn't listen. I was ridiculed. And uh, I just hadn't learned a single thing. About this time, after a year and a half or so, I went down to Canton, Ohio some other members of AA, to hear a, a fellow lead that I had heard before, and I kind of liked his talk. Uh, it was an Amish gentleman by the name of Mose, Mose Yoder, he don't mind me breaking his anonymity, Mose is long gone, but he had helped so many, many, many people in our area. And Mose had been watching me, and I didn't know anything about this, but after the meeting, he came to me, he says, Tommy says, if, uh, if you've taken the 12 steps, I said, well, I said, I'm an alcoholic, and I read them. I said, not really, Moses. He said, well, he said, I didn't think so. But I like this guy, and I didn't take offense at him uh, calling a spade a spade with me. He says, I'll tell you what I'd like to have you do, if you will. He says, have you ever heard of the four absolutes? I said, well, somebody read them once. He says, I'll tell you what, if you, if you would learn the four absolutes, honesty, love, purity, and selfishness. You will automatically be working the 12 steps. Big light on a shortcut. <laughs> so I said, fine. I said, I'll try that. So in spite of myself, I, uh, I, I worked very hard trying to visualize and live my life accordingly, according to the four absolutes. Of course, I took the 12 steps. I'm still taking them. But, uh, I'll tell you, that four absolutes meant so much to me. It got me on track. It started me to realize that there's a better way to live. And I started to live according to what my sponsors and my friends were telling me, one day at a time, and take an active part. I sat around the edges for a long time. Get active, they told me. So I started to do this, and I started to make the coffee. Grudgingly, but I made it. And I did other things, and I started to leave the meeting here and there. The first, I'll tell you about the first meeting. Some of you young jocks will probably appreciate this. 
I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or 12 Steps or anything. I was just struggling. And I went to this uh, meeting on my first talk, and all I did was talk about football. Jesus, I had some great stories, and the young guys liked it. My sponsors were sitting in the front row just tolerating me. And uh, after the meeting, I thought I'd done just a wonderful job. And uh, uh, one little fellow stood up in the back, and I'd never seen him before. He made a comment that went something like this. He says, Brown, he says, uh, I remember seeing you play. I'm from Pittsburgh, and I used to watch you on Sunday afternoon. I thought he, boy, I started to swell up the ego. I almost exploded. I thought he was going to say something real beautiful about me. He made some nice remarks, but then his closing statement was, didn't they commonly refer to you as the tight end? Everybody laughed. In those years, they, uh, they didn't have tight ends. I had flankers and so forth, but right and left hands. Everybody laughed. You know, I, I, I resented that so much. And after the meeting, I went back and I, I sought this fellow out. I said, what the hell's the idea of making jokes at my expense? And he said, uh, it wasn't a joke, Tom. He said, you're just having a good time. We thought you'd take care. And everybody was laughing. They had their arms around me, patting me on the back, you know. And you know, for the first time in my life, I started to feel as though I was really a part with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I started to enjoy it a little bit, and I started to laugh, something I hadn't done for a long time. I'm a fun guy, and I love to have a good time. I still do. But I thought in Alcoholics Anonymous, you just didn't have any fun. Well, I want to tell you, since uh, that particular day, in, in particular, I should say, I started to have a good time, and, I, and I've been having a wonderful time ever since. We have our ups and downs, of course, in life. We have our tragedies and so forth. Uh, my, my four daughters were raised in a 12-step in a home. They witnessed the occasion when we brought people into our home and talked to them. They knew the dangers of alcoholism, and they lived accordingly. And uh, we're, we did, I'm so proud for the way they have turned out. And this is what alcoholics, is, as far as I'm concerned, means. We can come to these meetings we learn about the 12 steps and we learn how to live and how to act and how to treat people. But you know, in the meetings we all, I could be a great guy. And I usually was at the meetings. And sometimes I'd go home and I'd be completely different. I think Alcoholics Anonymous starts in the home. My interpretation, I think this is where it all starts. This is where I caused all of the damage, most of it. And so this is where I had to start making amends. And it was all a learning process for me and it still is. My wife got into Al-Anon. Thank God for Al-Anon. I think that uh, an alcoholic spouse, uh, spouse of an alcoholic, getting into Al-Anon, the alcoholic has a great, great better chance of making it as far as sobriety is concerned. They're working the same steps and uh, (coughs) have their own program to work on. It worked out beautiful for us. I don't mean to imply that we didn't have our ups and downs. We did. Clean up until the day we lost her. We had some disagreements. But my sponsor told me, the only way you can have an argument is if you both have your mouth open. Keep your mouth shut. I tried to do this. It's pretty difficult sometimes. But you know, I often stopped and thought, if the shoe was on the other foot, if if Betty would have been in my place and I could have traded places with her, how big of a person would I have been to be able to forgive and forget some of the degrading situations that I dragged her through? 
I wouldn't live with her for 10 seconds, and I know that. So I give the credit to Al-Anon, but just a, I think just a great, great companion to the Alcoholics Anonymous program. I've always felt that way, and I always will. We uh, <coughs> had our ups and downs, as I say, and uh, the girls have all grown up, as I tell you, in a great, 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 beautiful atmosphere that we lived in. My wife took sick, and uh, she was in and out of the hospital there for a while, and they uh, detected cancer. And uh, my girls were uh, distraught as I was, and uh, it was uh, three or four years under treatment, in and out of hospitals and doctors. It was just a very trying, trying <clears throat> time of my life and all of our lives. <clears throat> I want to say that uh, the way Alcoholics Anonymous works, I can relate a couple of instances to you that it was working in my life and I didn't even know it. When the girls were out on parties and so forth during the, when they were growing up and in high school, we always stayed, one of us stayed awake until they got in at their curfew time. And uh, this particular evening I went to bed early and uh, the next thing I can remember, I'd been sober maybe 12 or 15 years, and uh, Betty Jane, with, there was, I managed to buy my daughter's automobiles when they were seniors in high school for the rewards and their graduation presents and so forth so they could enjoy their automobiles in their senior year. Betty Jean had called my wife and uh, she'd been drinking and her car was in a snowdrift and uh, Betty woke me up and said, uh, your daughter called. <laughs> <coughs> and she hung up on me. She'd been drinking. I'd been sober quite a number of years. And I jumped out of that bed. I got dressed and I was swearing and I was carrying on. Just a raving nut. And uh, how dare her hang up on you and treat, treat you like that. And uh, I got in my car and I went to the, just a mile or so away. It took me maybe 45 minutes to cover that territory. And I thank God for that time because I calmed down a little bit. And when I got there, I rang the bell, and a little girl answered the door, don't you come in, Mr. Brown. And I went into the room, and <clears throat> I said, I came from my daughter, Betty Jane. And uh, <clears throat> Betty Jane came out of one of the rooms, carrying her coat. She was as white as a sheet, scared to death. And all of the anger <clears throat> just left that quick. And all the love that I had within me just went out to her. I can remember it as though it was yesterday. And I went over and I put my arms around her and I helped her on with her coat and I said, let's go home, honey. So we went home and we didn't talk much that night. Betty and, uh, and my sister and her sisters put her to bed. And next morning at breakfast, we had a little talk. I took the keys from her, from her for the rest of the month. And uh, she never once asked me for those keys during that period. <clears throat> she was such a good little kid about it. I gave her the keys prematurely and, and <clears throat> I gave them back. But I'll never forget that because how quick we can forget of where we came from. And thank God that it allowed me that enough time to get there and to calm down. I can remember the look on her face. Now, just imagine if I'd have gone in there and slapped her around or dragged her out of there the devastation that I could have caused that gal, that young girl, in front of all of her friends. It might have ruined her for life. I don't know, but it's happened, I know. 
So I thank God for so many things that have happened to me in this fellowship to have given me a little bit more reasoning and understanding that I never had before. I say today that, and I used to wonder how somebody could stand up here and say, I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I used to think, geez, that's crazy. But I can tell you today that I'm glad I'm an alcoholic. I truly am. Because it's very unlikely that I would have been able to find a life that I've enjoyed for these past, I've been sober 33 years, but past 25 years. It would have been impossible, I think, in any other phase of my livelihood. <clears throat> in any event, that was an occasion that I'll never forget. On that same realm, thinking about that, my youngest, my second to the youngest daughter was a loner. She was a... <clears throat> Uh, oh, I don't know, she, she had friends, but she didn't participate in many things. And uh, all the other girls were in cheerleaders and bands and so forth. And I told my wife, or I asked Betty, I said, we ought to do something with uh, Debbie. And uh, Betty said, you should leave Debbie alone. Okay. So I left Debbie alone. And one day, in her, uh, she came home and she said, Dad, I'd like to take baton twirling lessons. I said, boy, that's wonderful. So we got her the batons and the teachers and so forth. And I practiced with her a lot of nights right after school. We'd practice. You see, I've learned from my own experience that the only way you can get better at anything, as far as I'm concerned, is to practice. And that applies in whatever we're doing in life. I think it applies in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went with Debbie, and we practiced and practiced. And she started winning ribbons and trophies and throughout the years and in her senior year she participated in a state competition and she was number one in the state of Ohio as a twirler. She accomplished that in four years. That's unheard of. They start twirling when they're old enough to walk. But Deb did it, Deb did it in four years and it just brought out so much beauty in that gal, that young girl. And uh, I think that everybody ought to have something like that to to hang on to and to excel in, regardless of what it is. That same year, Deb came flying into the house one afternoon. She said, Dad, guess what? I've been selected as one of the six homecoming contestants for Homecoming Queen. I said, my God. I said, that's wonderful, Deb. And boy, we're doing a little celebrating. And I said, that's great. The student body uh, select the contestants for that. And I said, that's, that's wonderful, Debbie. And... Uh, <clears throat> We were having a good time. I got thinking. I said, hell, there can only be one queen, you know. So right away, that was a big concern of mine. <laughs> and I, I told Deb, I said, Deb, I said, you know, hon, don't get your hopes up too high because you can only have one queen. She said, Dad, she said, I'm not worried about that. She said, the fact that I'm a contestant, uh, that's all that matters. And finally, the night came around when the afternoon came around that we were going to uh, nominate the queen at the football game. And they had six convertibles and five other proud fathers and myself. We made a tour of the field, a couple of laps around the track, and they let us out on the far end of the field. And Debbie was just radiantly beautiful. And it's just, uh, I'll never forget it. And uh, the band was right there making a lot of noise and stuff, and Deb was tugging at my arm, and I had to reach down, and I said, what is it, honey? And she said, Dad, she said, I want to tell you something. She said, for the last couple of years, I sat up in those stands, and I had the greatest ambition and wish that someday I would be able to stand down here on the 50-yard line with my dad as a contestant for homecoming queen. She says, 
My life is complete. All my dreams have come true. <laughs> Seventeen years old, my dreams are complete. Oh. <clears throat> so I, uh, I kissed De- Deb on the cheek, and I told her how proud we were of not only herself but her sisters and the way things are working out. We crossed. Uh, they called us across the field, and, and uh, in a half circle, and uh, they announced over the 1979. Uh, <clears throat> PA system that the new 1979 homecoming queen was Miss Debbie Brown, and I damn near fainted right there. I'll tell you. <laughs> we had our little celebration, of course, and the girls went to their own individual parties. Betty and I went home, and we gave thanks to God and to Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon just for the beautiful way that uh, things have turned out for us, and we were extremely grateful. I'll never, ever forget that particular evening. I had lots of nice awards and so forth in my own behalf, but none would ever come close to that experience that I had that particular night. In any event, Betty uh, later on got sick, and uh, about four years ago we lost her. That's one of the <coughs> most devastating things that happened to our family, <coughs> and uh, I was with her right up to the end. And it was very difficult to get over, and I, uh, I just, uh, I was lost. I just kind of got away from my friends and AA, and I just drifted. And I didn't know what to do. I couldn't sleep. I was very lonely. Uh, <clears throat> I depended so much on her, and uh, it was just a very, very trying time. <clears throat> and I'm sure, well, a friend of mine called my attention to the fact when I was feeling sorry for myself one afternoon. He said, you know, we were passing a cemetery. And he said, you know, everybody laying in that cemetery left a grieve one just like you. He says, it's uh, something that goes on all and on, Tom. You can't stop it. And it brought that, it just like, well, certainly, I know, but I, it's, it's tough. And he said, I know it's tough. It's tough to get over. <clears throat> and uh, it was. I even bought a interstate Honda motorcycle. <laughs> And I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and take off for Erie or something on my bike. And I had a wonderful time doing that. And that kind of eased the tension a little bit. But that wasn't the answer. And I'd been dating a few ladies and nice people. But they're just, uh, just, the loneliness was there. And then you heard my present wife Shirley talk yesterday. Uh, I didn't know what she was going to say when she got into that nut story about 25 pounds of nuts. I... If there'd have been a hundred pounds of nuts, I would have probably bought it. But in any event, Shirley and I met at the, uh, the Atwood Lodge conference, and we both lost our mates about the same time. And we talked, as she said yesterday, laid our cards on the table about the four absolutes. I loved what she said. I held her hands that Saturday night and looked into those big brown eyes, <clears throat> and I knew that I had something here. I knew that there was something there that I wanted. So what the hell, I asked her to marry me a couple of weeks later. But uh, that's, I, I, I'm very impulsive. But I knew that this was the answer. And she, of course, uh, we waited six months. And uh, we have enjoyed one of the greatest relationships that I ever thought possible. And it was all due to the fellowship, really, of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, this would never have happened if it had not been for AA. I had no intentions of remarrying, ever. I had had it. But uh, I, want, I want you to know that I'm, I've never been happier. We see a lot alike. We don't always agree, as she told you yesterday. Once in a while, I think I'm right. Uh, 
But uh, we can work that out through what we have learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, and the four absolutes, and all of the countless pieces of literature that we have. So we're doing real well. And uh, we, as she mentioned, we bought a home in Florida. We're going down there shortly and uh, try to have a beautiful time. But, I'll, you know, I'll never, ever forget the alcoholics that I've met in this area as well as other areas in the north and in the Midwest and south. It's just a beautiful, beautiful way to live. There isn't anything else that I can say here this morning except to say that uh, uh, I think an awful lot of all of you, I love you. Uh, please take good care of yourselves because you may not need me, but I sure as hell need you. Thank you and good luck to you.